This morning we're continuing our study, continuing our study in Galatians chapter 3, and this first little segment is called the Abraham Key. Now you know where I got the stuff we talked about earlier this morning from. <laughs> Picking up our text with Galatians 3 and verse 7 through 9, therefore, Recognize that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. A reminder here, I'm using New, Internet, uh, New American Standard 2020 for this study. Recognize that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. And Paul goes on talking about Abraham, and he gets straight to the point, and we're going to get to that in just one second. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we thank you for the peace that it brings. We thank you for the joy that it brings. We thank you that the fruit of the Spirit is seen through it, and that anything that's bringing us fear, uncertainty, and doubt is not coming from you. You are the giver of every good and wonderful gift, and you don't take them back. Father, we pray that you'd open our hearts and minds to hear what you have for us here we thank you so much for Paul and for his ability to write these things. We thank you for all the incredible work that you did in him to make him uh, an apostle uh, that, that, that just blesses us even today. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul goes on talking about Abraham and he gets straight to the point declaring that the children of Abraham are those who believe God. And we saw that earlier, didn't we? And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. I mean, I'll make the point again, but can you imagine you're Abraham, you're sitting in Ur of the Chaldees, you know, you got your feet up on the, on your, uh, and you're lazy boy, and you're, and you're just sitting up there, and you got your wife next to you, and, and suddenly you hear from God, you know, I want you to get up and leave your family and leave this place and go off and I'll tell you where you're going after a while. Just go. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure my spouse would be down with that. <laughs> it would be hard. It takes faith. And he got up and he went and he demonstrated faith. And that's why Scripture says right there at the outset, his faith was credited to him as righteousness. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And Abraham chose to believe God when he was told by Scripture, when he was told by Christ uh, to go. He was not the first to bring up the idea that physical lineage, Paul was not the first to bring up the idea that physical lineage is not the way to God. In Luke 3.8, John the Baptist said, do not start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children for Abraham. What this says 
about God is nearly beyond our ability to comprehend. But it points out that He alone determines how we can be placed into relationship with Him. That Paul, a Pharisee and a self-proclaimed Hebrew of Hebrews, would say this is earth-shaking. Abraham was venerated by the Jews. He was a big deal. Indeed, Abraham was the source of the Hebrew nation. He was the son of Shem, so that made him a Semite. Through Eber, which appears to be where the name Hebrew originated. And Eber came out of Eber. The first mention of the word Hebrew is used of Abram in Genesis 14, 13. We get an idea of how strongly the Jews of Christ's day felt about their lineage from Abraham in John 8, 51-53. And there Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone follows my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets as well. And yet you say, if anyone follows my word, he'll never taste of death. You're not greater than our father Abraham who died, are you? The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? After a bit more discourse, in John 8, 56-59, is recorded how the discussion ended. Jesus said, Your father Abraham was overjoyed that he would see my day, and he saw it and rejoiced. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and left the temple grounds. They wanted to stone him because he claimed to be God. Knowing all this, the fact that Paul makes such an amazing statement should cause us to pay very close attention to the point he's making. That it is those who believe God who are counted as children of Abraham is a recurring theme. Romans chapter 4 is dedicated to this truth. You want a great read this afternoon? Read Romans chapter 4 and listen to what it says about Abraham. Here's a snippet. Romans 4, 9 to 12. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? Was it while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That'd be us. 
that righteousness might be credited to them and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, that's the Hebrews, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Now, you know, we read in the New Testament in a couple of places about this idea of the circumcision not made with hands. This is the separation of the body of the sins of the flesh. This is that death to sin, death to the power of sin. This is that death, that crucifixion of the old self and the resurrection of the new self. Another clear example is found in Romans 9, 6-8, through 8, where Paul said, They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants shall be named, says the Scripture. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. This is such an important point. Two children were born to Abraham and Sarah, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was born after Sarah and Abe decided to help make father's promise come true by having Abe sleep with a servant girl named Hagar. Isaac, on the other hand, was miraculously born to Abe and Sarah, who had been unable to bear children her entire life, when he was, she was about 90 and he was about 100. This lesson is one we can all take to heart. Some have stumbled in this when they have felt Father leading them by His Spirit towards some destination or goal, rather than allowing Him to be the driving force by which that goal is accomplished, some have felt the need to step in and be the the cause themselves. God told me to do this, so i got to go get it done. Causal self-effort is upside down in the kingdom. According to Philippians 2.13, it is He who is at work in us, both to desire and to do godly things. And according to Philippians 1.6, He will work His plan to completion in us and through us. We just need to depend on Him and allow events to unfold as He directs and as He presents them. Parenthetically, it's also interesting to note that these two sons, the son of the promise and the son of the flesh, were in conflict with one another. In this, I see a picture of the war between the Spirit of God within us and the fleshly ways of the world around us. And we'll get to this again in in Galatians 5.17. But now, Galatians 3, 8, and 9 sum this up well. The Scripture says, The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, 
all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is the place where Scripture preached the gospel to Abraham. Do you notice this kind of personification of Scripture? He says, Scripture preached this. It's kind of an interesting way of looking at it. It says there, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Be sure to notice here that God did not tell Abram the destination of his journey. He simply told him, told him to leave Ur and go. That Abraham left was a profound demonstration of his faith in God. Now as we continue with our study, this little segment is called Law is Not of Faith. Galatians 3, 10-14 says this, For all who are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. You know, we get wrapped up in that in the, in the Western church these days, don't we? We feel like if we don't do all the stuff, God's going to be upset with us. And in fact, it's preached in fiery language from pulpits all over the United States. That's an Old Testament concept. It has to do with Jews under the law. And we'll get there. Back into our passage. Now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For, and he quotes again, the righteous one will live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, again, a quote, Scripture says, the person who performs them will live by them. And another way to translate that, and that a lot of translations do, is the person who performs them will live in them. Either way, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That's how we get it. Trust Him. To make it clear that Scripture, which remember at the time Paul was writing, meant the Hebrew Scriptures that we call the Old Testament, has always taught that justification comes only by believing God, the Apostle quoted a number of passages. First he writes, 
Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. This comes from Deuteronomy 27.26. And if you want to live a life of condemnation, try to live a life according to the book of Deuteronomy. That'll suck the life right out of you. You can't do it. Here's what it says there in Deuteronomy. Cursed is anyone who does not fulfill the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Do you see it? The Israelites agreed to this idea. When the, when the covenant was originally established on Mount Sinai, they did the same thing. Everything the Lord has said, we will do it. This passage is part of a much longer scene, and actually it's several chapters long, where Moses and the Levites are preparing the people to enter the promised land. They're being given detailed instructions, and while they are promised incredible blessing if they obey all the commandments of the law, they are also severely warned about the terrible curses their failure to obey on any point will bring. This is the nature of the law. It is the nature of all attempts to gain acceptance by God through religious observation and meritorious conduct. But Paul goes on to quote another passage. And this time he quotes Habakkuk 2 in verse 4 in saying that the righteous one will live by faith. His point is that the law the following of commandments and religious observances, striving to be made acceptable by meritorious conduct, does not require faith. What it requires is willpower. (laughs) Such things rely on human strength, which is never enough to achieve the goal. In the end, The religion of meritorious conduct always ends in failure. We see it all the time, don't we? Ministers fell from grace. They did some terrible thing and now they can't be ministers anymore. We've got politicians being prosecuted for all kinds of crazy crimes. We've got people who don't know the truth from a lie. We've got evil and war and combat going on all over the place. The religion of meritorious conduct always ends that way. To back this up, he then invokes Leviticus 18.5 where God tells the Israelites that they are not to behave like all the nations around them. (laughs) Doesn't that speak to us today? Don't behave like everybody in the world. But he says, they're not to behave like all the nations around them. He tells them, you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a person follows them, then he will live by them. I am the Lord. That's a hard passage. There's very important truth here that we want to be sure to contemplate. At first glance, it can seem as though Father is saying that if we follow all the rules, we'll find eternal life. But that can't be what He's saying. And we'll get to that in just a second. 
He is saying, I believe, that if we decide to seek righteousness and acceptance through rule-keeping, then our life will be religiously living by a list of rote and robotic instructions, and that is no life at all. But that is kind of what Christianity amounts to for a lot of people, isn't it? Jesus pointed this out, and here's where we're going to see this, that we can't that this can't be that Father is saying if we follow all the rules, we'll find eternal life. Jesus pointed it out in John 5, 39-40, where He said, You examine the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is those very Scriptures that testify about Me, and yet you're unwilling to come to Me so that you may have life. We're going to see this theme repeated again and again and again in Revelation. All of these plagues, all of these terrible things come upon people. And it says they curse God and they still will not turn. Even when they see how how, uh, unreliable the world is, they still won't turn to God for a solution. You are unwilling to come to me so that you might have life. The Jewish people read Leviticus just as it at first seems to present itself. And in so doing, they missed the true source of life. It wasn't in the obedience to rules. It was in the person of God. Consequently, they found themselves weighed down beyond their ability. As Peter pointed out in Acts 15.10, when he referred to such religious practice as a yoke which neither our forefathers nor we have been able to bear. It wasn't as if they didn't know. They knew. This is the curse of the law. The attainment of righteousness and acceptance through perfect conduct is not achievable, and all who try it fail and fall under the curse that we saw in Deuteronomy. As Father had long planned, and Paul goes on to tell us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And you can find that in Deuteronomy 21-23. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit, Through faith. The Lord Jesus became a curse for us so that in Him the promised blessing would result in both the Jewish people and we who are Gentiles being given righteousness and the Holy Spirit through faith. This is echoed in 2 Corinthians 5.21 which you hear me quote a lot, (laughs) which tells us that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I quote it a lot because there's so much truth in there and so much freedom in there. It isn't that you're trying to become righteous. It isn't about making yourself righteous. It's about He made you righteous. And when He makes you righteous, 
You're righteous indeed. It is this magnificent act of love and grace that causes us to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, the slain Lamb of God who overcomes the world. Can you imagine how the enemy feels about that? He's been beaten by a slain lamb. He is the anointed one who saves us from the curse of religion and reconciles us to God in intimate relationship so deep and profound that we are properly called His body and His spotless bride. His words from the cross, it is finished, reverberate throughout history from the creation to the judgment as we will see as we study Revelation. Now we're going to move to Galatians 3.15 and we're going to talk about covenants and changes. 3.15 to 29, we're just going to start in 15. Brothers and sisters, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Anyone who's ever borrowed money from a bank to buy a house, a car, an education, or for some other large financial need knows what a contract is. In contracts, we write down the terms of our, agree our agreement. One party agrees to provide something to the other party, and the receiving party agrees to compensate the supplier by paying them. Not only for the funding, but also for taking the risk that they might never be repaid. That's what interest is all about, partly. If you've ever tried to renegotiate such a contract, you know that it's almost impossible. I mean, think about this, right? You've got a car loan, and your car's getting a couple of years old, and you're starting to think, you know... I really wish I wasn't paying as much for this. I think I'm going to go back and see if they'll reduce my payments. <laughs> Good luck. Good luck. It's almost impossible. Once the terms have been agreed to and the legal documents signed, it may as well have been chiseled in stone. That's the picture Paul gives here when he says, no one sets a covenant aside or adds new conditions to it. Covenants are unbreakable agreements, and the ancients generally sealed the most important covenants with blood. To break a covenant was to forfeit life. God has made covenants with people and with people groups. His covenant with Abraham was unilateral. God was the one who made all the promises and was bound to adhere to the terms of the agreement. The blood of a bull signified the ratification of this covenant. And some of it was enacted while Abraham slept. <laughs> Later, God made a covenant with the people of Israel. This covenant was written by God on tablets of stone and communicated by Him to Moses in greater detail. So the Ten Commandments were sort of the, the outline, and then there was all the detail, and that took up four more books 
of the Scripture. This covenant is instituted and described in Exodus, but the details are contained in Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Just as blood was shed to establish God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, blood was shed at the institution of this covenant. We're talking about the law now. Exodus 24, 6 and 7 records that Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and he read it as the people listened. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. The Hebrew people agreed to the terms of the covenant. Having done so, the covenant could be ratified. And Genesis 20, Exodus 24.8 records that Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. I'm really glad we don't ratify covenants like that now. Sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Like our example contract with the bank, if a change is needed, we can't make the change. The bank must make the change because they created the contract to begin with. It's the same with the covenant between God and the nation of Israel. Since the law came from God, only God could change the law. Thanks be to God, that is just what He did through the Lord Jesus. We studied that when we looked at Hebrews. And we said where there's a change, Hebrews said where there's a change of the priesthood, there must only also be a change of the law. But that change of the law couldn't come about by anything the Levitical priesthood could do. It couldn't come about by anything any leader in Israel could do. It could only come about by, by God because it was God's law. And that's what He did for us in Christ. Next time, we're going to continue in this part of Galatians 3. And we're going to look at verses 16 through 29 to get us started. And we're going to see more nuance and more insight into this whole idea that the law is not of faith. And that by the law, no one is justified. And we keep driving that point home because the law is so insidious. It sneaks in unaware like the Judaizers. Without us noticing. And it spies out our freedom. And it says, oh, but you're doing this. And oh, but you're doing that. And oh, but you shouldn't be. Because it's sneaky. And a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. A little yeast causes the whole loaf to change. We must continue to keep the law out of the picture and remember that it is dependence on Christ. It is faith that pleases God. Oh, and God is pleased with you. We saw this morning wonderful passages from, from Romans to Revelation in Song of Solomon, we saw these beautiful passages, these beautiful pictures about God's love for us and the closeness of union that He desires. This is what Peter was talking about when he said, Grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. Get to know your husband. 
the law is not of faith, and without faith it is impossible to please God. We'll be continuing this next week, Lord willing, and uh, should be good stuff to look forward to. There's a lot of exciting stuff coming in Galatians uh, before we get to Revelation, but I think it will really set the stage and drive home in our minds the segregation between religion and relationship, knowing what to do and knowing who, knowing Him, knowing the source. Father, we thank You this morning for this wonderful insight into how you are relating with us and your, your strong desire to have a love relationship with us. And Father, we want the same thing. We pray this morning that you would drive this home to us, that it would roll around in our heads this week, that we'd continue to ponder upon it and that we would, that we would just absorb it, that we would steep in it like tea, that it would be so natural for us that when we are at those difficult points in our day-to-day life where we're not sure how to react or what to do or how to approach our problems, that we would remember to listen for you. We do thank you. We thank you that we can get together here and in this place. And we pray for this church. We thank you that we have it. We ask that you would bless it. We'd love to see more people here. But Father, you are in us, and wherever we are, we are the church. We are your body. We are your bride. Thank you for making us so beautiful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.